You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a uh, collected works, number uh, 59, by Rudolf Steiner, the second volume of Transforming the Soul, originally entitled Metamorphosis of the Soul in English. This is translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem, and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is Lecture 7, entitled Error and Mental Disorder, given on the 28th of April, 1910. In this cycle of lectures, which I had the honor of holding here for you this winter, I undertook from the point of view of spiritual science, as characterized in the first of these lectures, to throw light on all kinds of manifestations of human soul life and of life in a wider context. Today let us observe an area of human life which can take us deeply into human misery, suffering, and perhaps even as far as losing hope. To make up for this, we shall then, in the following lecture, touch on an area entitled conscience, which will take us back again to the heights where human dignity and human value, the strength of human awareness, can appear at their best. And then we shall conclude this year's cycle by having a look at the mission of art, when I will endeavor to show the thoroughly healthy side of what might perhaps appear today from its most terrible shadow side. When error and mental disorder are spoken of, then, no doubt, everyone will recall images of the deepest human suffering, and also, probably, images of the deepest human sympathy. And everything this brings up in our souls can then be a challenge to throw into this soul abyss a little of the light we believe we have acquired in these lectures. Particularly, those people who are acquainted who are acquainting themselves more and more with the way of thinking we have been working with here, are bound to hope that our spiritual scientific method will, in certain respects, illuminate this sad chapter of life. For anyone with some knowledge of the literature about it, and I am now referring less to the rapidly expanding non-specialist literature than to the scientific kind, will be able to note from the spiritual scientific point of view that in some respects it goes extraordinarily far and offers a wealth of material for assessing the relevant facts. But on the other hand, in no literature does it become so clear how incapable the different theories, views and modes of thinking of our time are of bringing together and providing a suitable framework for the experiences and scientific observations which have been collected. In this field in particular, we have had a real opportunity to see just how much in harmony spiritual science feels with genuine science, with all the scientific facts, results and experiences we encounter. But at every turn it finds contradiction between these experiences and the way they are interpreted 
from the current scientific point of view. As in other fields, we shall again only be able to deal with the subject in outline, but perhaps it will nevertheless provide the stimulus to acquire sufficient understanding to flow into our practice of life so that we become increasingly capable of orienting ourselves with regard to the deplorable conditions that we shall be looking at. When we use the words, in quotes, error, and, in quotes, mental disorder, one thing that should strike us, whether we are conscious of it or not, is that when we say the one, we are saying something totally different from when we say the other. Nevertheless, the exact observer of a soul life that can truly be described as mentally disordered will discover expressions and manifestations that only seem to be different in degree from some kind of error committed by someone who is otherwise regarded as normal. But such observations are liable to misinterpretation insofar as certain directions of thought have the tendency to blur the dividing lines and to state that in fact no firm dividing line exists between a healthy normal soul life and one that can be described as being mentally disordered. Such statements contain a certain danger, which must be emphasized when the occasion occurs. And the danger lies not in the fact that the statement is wrong, but that it is right. This sounds paradoxical, but nevertheless it is true that wrong statements are sometimes less dangerous than correct ones that can be interpreted and put into practice in a one-sided way, because people, so to say, do not notice the danger inherent in their correctness. If people can, in a certain respect, prove that something is right, they think they have really said something. But it should be realized that every matter that is correct also has its reverse aspect, and that any truth that we discover is true only in respect of certain facts and experiences. The danger arises the moment it is extended to cover other areas, when it is carried too far and becomes a dogmatic belief. This is the reason why, in general, not much is achieved if we know that a truth exists. The important thing is that to really know a thing we should take note of the limits within which that knowledge is valid. Admittedly, we can observe phenomena in a normal, healthy soul life which, if they go beyond a certain point, are also pathological symptoms. The full weight of this statement will be noticed only by someone who is actually used to observing life on a more intimate level. Who would deny that it belongs to a pathological condition that can be put under the heading of mental disorder when someone is incapable of linking one comprehended concept at the right moment with a second one? so that he applies the first one in a new and completely inappropriate situation and acts on the basis of an idea that was correct for an earlier situation but not for a later one. Who would deny that this could border on the pathological? If it happens sufficiently often, it is absolutely a symptom of mental disorder. But who, on the other hand, would deny that there are people who are unable to advance in their work because they are so long-winded, so fussy. 
It can happen in normal life that someone gets stuck with one idea. Then there comes the point where we have to stop talking about them being in error. We have to start speaking of a pathological mental state. Let us assume, for example, that someone is subject to the pathological error, and this really does happen, that when someone in the vicinity clears their throat, this does not sound to him like a normal cough, and he is under the misapprehension that people are saying unkind things about him. If that person then arranges his life and actions in response to this illusion, he will be considered as someone who is mentally disordered. And yet there is a thin line between this and occurrences in ordinary life where it happens that someone has overheard something and interprets the meaning in such a way that he thinks he hears something completely different from what was actually said. Or, have you not heard how often it happens that somebody says, quote, that person said such and such about me, close quote, and there is not a hint of confirmation to be found that the other person actually said that. Now and again it can be extremely difficult to determine where a healthy soul life turns into a pathological one. This may seem pathological, but it could provoke some thoughts on this subject if we imagine someone looking at an avenue of trees and having the quite normal perception of seeing the trees nearby at the proper distance, while those further away appear to move closer and closer together. And deciding to tie ropes between the trees, he makes the lengths of rope shorter and shorter the farther away the trees are. There we have an example of a person drawing the wrong conclusions from a perfectly healthy observation. But healthy observation only comes about because there is an illusion. The illusion is also an observation. The unhealthy, harmful aspect of illusion comes about only if the person concerned assumes it to be the same sort of reality as a table standing in front of him. It is only when he cannot interpret the observation correctly that it can be described as pathological. Now, we can compare the case of someone having an hallucination and considering it to be reality in the normal physical sense with the paradox that someone wanted to tie the trees of an avenue together with shorter and shorter pieces of rope. Logically, there would be no difference between them. Yet how easily can an illusion lead us to make a false judgment, and how rarely would we make a similar false judgment with observing an avenue of trees? All this may appear foolish to some people, but it is necessary all the same to take things as subtle as this into account, for otherwise we would not be able to go further and see how easily normal life can be unsound. We can give further examples of still more striking cases of people whose soul life is considered to be in the highest degree sound and astute. I would like to tell you something about a German philosopher who is currently considered by his colleagues to be among the foremost in his field. He tells us of the following experience. While in conversation with another man, they came to talk about a scholar who was a mutual acquaintance of theirs. The moment the conversation turned to this scholar, the philosopher's mind reverts first to seeing the image of an illustrated book of Paris and immediately afterward to seeing the image of a photograph album of Rome.
Meanwhile, they go on talking about the scholar, and at the same time the philosopher searches his mind as to how it was possible that during their conversation, first the image of the illustrated book of Paris and then the photograph album of Rome could come into his mind, and indeed he managed to establish the right connections. For the scholar they were talking about had a remarkable pointed beard, and his beard immediately called up in the philosopher's consciousness the image of Napoleon III, who also had a pointed beard. And this image of Napoleon, which had pushed its way into his consciousness, led, via France, to the illustrated book of Paris. And then the image of another man shot into his mind who had a Van Dyke mustache, the image of Victor Emmanuel of Italy. And this image led, via Italy, to the photo album of Rome. We have an odd sequence here. We could call it a linking up of images, seemingly without rhyme or reason, whilst something completely different is happening on a fully conscious level. Let us suppose now that a person, having reached the point where the illustrated book of Paris pops up, can no longer keep hold of the thread of conversation, and then immediately has the following image of the photo album of Rome. He would be given up to a random assortment of images and would be unable to hold an orderly conversation with anyone, but be enmeshed in a pathological life of soul, carrying him from one disconnected flight of fancy to another. Then our philosopher goes on to compare this with another case in which he hopes to discover the inner connections. One day he went to the Inland Revenue Office to pay his tax. He had to pay 75 marks, and since, despite his philosophy, he was an orderly man, he had entered these 75 marks in his cash book and proceeded with his other business. Subsequently, he had occasion to need to remember how much he had paid in taxes. It had completely slipped his memory. He thought about the matter, and being a philosopher, he went to work systematically. He tried to recall the amount of his association by an association of ideas. He concentrated on actually going to the tax office, and he remembered having four gold twenty-mark pieces in his wallet and being given five marks change. Remembering these two images, he could, by simple subtraction, conclude that he had paid seventy-five marks tax. Here we have two totally different cases. In the first, there really is a considerable difference between the two soul processes. But the philosopher fails to draw attention to something which the spiritual researcher would immediately notice. For the essential thing is the, in the first case is that he is discussing something with somebody else and that his whole attention is focused on this conversation and that the random sequence of images although occurring in a different layer of consciousness, were left to their own devices. In the second case, the philosopher turns his whole attention to determining the sequence of images. This only throws light on why the images occur haphazardly in the first case, whilst in the second they are exposed to the correcting influence of conscious soul life. But why are images there in the first place? The philosopher fails to answer that. Those who observe life, who know of similar cases and 
who are in a position to take into account the nature of the philosopher himself, parenthesis, I happen to know not only the case, but also the man, close parenthesis, will be able to set up the following hypothesis. The philosopher was talking about a man who did not particularly interest him. He would have had to force himself in order to concentrate on the conversation. Therefore, he had some superfluous mental forces, which not being engaged in the conversation turned inward. But he did not have the strength to control the resultant sequence of images, which therefore occurred at random, because he had to give his attention to the uninteresting conversation. This gives an indication how such images occur in the background of conscious soul life as shadows. Numerous examples could be given of this. I chose this one because it is very characteristic and much can be learned from it. This can throw up the question as to whether such a process does not prompt us to investigate human soul life more deeply. We could also wonder how such a division in the life of the soul can occur in the first place. And this brings us to the realm where the experiences belonging to that unhappy area we are studying today fit quite naturally into the sort of thing we have been meeting with so often this winter. When our philosopher talks about this kind of phenomenon in himself, he of course sees it as bordering on the mysterious. Having registered the facts, he does not want to say any more about them because our external science, even when it tells us so much about things, stops short when it comes to knowledge of the actual nature of things and of the human being himself. Our observation of the human being has shown that we should not merely accept what external science says, but we have to distinguish an outer and an inner man, and that the outer man is not more real than the inner man. We have shown in numerous fields that sleep has to be regarded differently from the way it is understood in ordinary science. We have shown that what is left behind in bed when someone goes to sleep is only the outer man, and that ordinary consciousness cannot follow the invisible, higher part of us, which is the actual inner man, and leaves the outer man during sleep. Ordinary consciousness just does not see that something goes forth that is just as real as that part which remains in bed, and that from falling asleep to awakening, the inner man is taken up into its real home, the spiritual world. It is here that it absorbs what it will need from the time of awakening until the next period of sleep, in order to sustain the usual life of the soul. This is why we have to regard separately and make a clear distinction between the outer man, who continues to exist according to the same laws even when asleep, and the inner man, who is only within the outer man in the waking state, but separates from it in sleep. As long as this distinction is not made, we will not be able to understand the most important phenomena of life. Those who, for reasons of convenience, see everything as a unity, and without a second thought, want to establish monism everywhere, will accuse us of being dualists because we divide the human being into two members, the inner and the outer one. 
But such people should also admit the horrible dualism of the chemist who splits water into hydrogen and oxygen. It is not possible to be a monist in the higher sense if one does not recognize that the monon is something which lies much deeper. But those who see unity straight away in the most immediate things hinder themselves from seeing the manifold nature of life which is essential to its understanding. We also showed that we have to distinguish individual members within the outer and the inner man. First we distinguish in the outer man the physical body, that member which we can see and touch. But we also recognize that there is another member which we call the etheric body, a body of forces that build and sculpt the physical body. The physical and etheric body remain in bed during sleep. The part that withdraws from the physical and etheric body and is in the spiritual world has been called in these lectures the human astral body, which encloses within it the actual bearer of the ego. But we made still more subtle distinctions. In the astral body we distinguished three members, and careful differentiation of these three members permitted an explanation of many of life's phenomena. We called the lowest member of soul life the sentient soul, the second the rational or the perceptive soul, and the third the consciousness soul. So when we refer to the inner man we shall not speak of a chaotic, undifferentiated intermingling of all sorts of will impulses, feeling experiences, concepts and mental images, but we shall carefully differentiate between these three members. Now in ordinary life there is a certain reciprocal relationship between the inner and the outer man which can be characterized as follows. The sentient soul, our lowest soul member, which contains our instincts and passions and to which we are slavishly subjected if the higher soul members are only slightly developed, is interrelated with the sentient body. This is similar to the sentient soul but is of a more external nature and therefore from this aspect can be considered as belonging to the outer man. The sentient soul is the lowest member of the inner man and corresponds to the sentient body in the outer man. Here we have to understand the difference between the astral body and the merely sentient body. The three soul members are of course only modifications of the astral body, not only formed by it, but actually drawn from it. In the waking state, the sentient soul is in constant interrelationship with the sentient body, likewise the rational or perceptive soul with the etheric body, and in a certain way the consciousness soul with the physical body. This is why, as far as everything that has to enter our consciousness soul is concerned, we are dependent on the messages we, we receive in our conscious daytime state. The things transmitted by our physical body, our senses and what we think with our brain are what initially comprise the content of the consciousness soul. Thus we have two three-membered entities of human nature which correspond to one another, the soul and the sentient body, the rational or perceptive soul and the etheric body and the consciousness soul and the physical body. 
This correspondence is precisely what can throw light on the threads linking the inner and the outer man and show us how normal soul life is disturbed if these links do not function properly. Why does this happen? The sentient soul is in a certain way dependent on the effects the sentient body has on it. So if the interrelation between the two is not right, then the healthy soul life of the sentient soul is disrupted. A similar thing occurs when the rational soul cannot regulate the etheric body as it should to make it a proper instrument for the rational soul. And the soul life of the consciousness soul will appear abnormal if the physical body is a hindrance as a normal means of expression. If we look at the human being systematically in this way, we can recognize that a regular interrelationship is essential for a healthy soul life and understand too that all sorts of interruptions can occur in the interrelating of the sentient soul and the sentient body, the rational soul and etheric body, and the consciousness soul and physical body. And only if we can recognize the threads running through this intricate organism and the irregularities that can occur will we be able to recognize what is happening when a force in the soul becomes unhealthy. This happens only when there is disharmony between the inner and the outer man. Did we not see this in the case we have just described? Let us take another look at the philosopher. In the life of soul taking place under the full control of his consciousness, we see what is going on in his consciousness soul on the one hand and his rational soul on the other. The sentient soul, however, is, without it hardly being noticed, throwing up first the image of the illustrated book on Paris and then the image of the photo album of Rome. It is occurring in this fashion because, although it is still relating to the person in front of him, he has allowed his attention to wander, thus bringing about a split between his sentient soul and sentient body. The images of the illustrated book on Paris and the photo album of Rome are seated in the sentient's body. What we described as the process that was out of control is happening here. The content of the conversation between the two men is taking place in the consciousness soul, in the inner man, and the necessity of being forced to keep his mind on the conversation causes a split between the sentient body and the sentient soul. These are in fact passing states. For only the slightest disturbance occurs in our soul life when it is merely the sentient body that becomes independent. We shall still be able to remain rational and keep the inner thread intact, knowing consciously that we are still there, despite the compulsive images which appear because of the sentient body becoming independent. When such a split occurs in respect of the rational soul and the etheric body, then the situation is a much more difficult one. Then we go deeply into those states that verge on the pathological. Nevertheless, in these cases, it is much more difficult to distinguish where a healthy condition ends and a pathological one begins. An odd example will make clear how difficult it is to maintain the experiences of the rational soul in complete independence 
when the etheric body goes on strike, refusing to be merely a tool for our thinking. When the etheric body goes independent and resists the rational soul, it prevents the thoughts from coming to full expression, and the thoughts become stuck halfway and cannot be completed. This can happen with the cleverest people. Let us take a grotesque example. Everyone will smile at and easily recognize the absurdity of the following. It is right to conclude that what you have not lost, you must still have. You have not lost long ears, so you still have them. The absurdity arises because the thought is not in accord with the facts. But on exactly the same pattern of having a preceding statement, quote, what you have not lost, close quote, which makes an unjustified assumption that goes unnoticed, the most unbelievable errors can be committed regarding the most important questions of life, but which are not so easily detected. For instance, there is a philosopher who persistently repeats a theory he has about the human ego. We have stressed here, time and again, that even in the way it is applied, the ego is different from anything else we experience. Anyone can call a table a table, a glass a glass, and a clock a clock, but specifically the word I cannot be used by anyone else when it describes ourselves. This is indicative of a fundamental difference between our experience of our ego and all our other experiences. We can notice such a thing. On the other hand, we can only half notice it, and one is only half noticing it if one comes to the conclusion that the philosopher came to when he said, quote, Therefore the ego can never be the object, and therefore it can never be observed. Close quote. And it seems a very clever view when he continues, quote, Anyone who wanted to grasp it would have to be able to move it about all over the place, outside himself, and yet be within it. That would be exactly the same as if someone were to run around a tree and tell himself that if he could run fast enough, he would be able to catch himself from behind. The professor actually made this comparison. And who would not be convinced when the dogma that the ego cannot be grasped in itself is backed by such an example? And yet the whole thing is based merely on a comparison that cannot be made. For it would have to be made on the assumption that we cannot observe the ego. If we wanted to make use of the comparison with the tree, we would have to say, quote, The ego cannot be compared with a person running round a tree, but at the most with a person who stretches himself round a tree like a snake. Then he could perhaps take hold of his feet with his hands. Close quote. For the ego has quite a different kind of objectivity than anything else we can experience. It has the kind of objectivity we can grasp as the coincidence of subject and object. This has been hinted at by mystics of all ages in the language of symbols, in the image of the snake biting its own tail. Those who used this symbol understood that what they were looking at was themselves. This example demonstrates how we advance from merely sensing and perceiving what is directly in front of us and which can out of harmony and which can get out of harmony solely with the sentient body to those things which affect not only mere sensation and perception but the rational or perceptive soul.
where we have to assimilate thoughts inwardly, which is already a much less arbitrary process, a hindrance is caused not only by the images themselves, but by something that offers quite a a different sort of resistance and that cannot be recognized by the kind of thinking which fails to pursue its processes rigorously to their conclusion. This was an example of how people can enmesh themselves in the sort of logic in which they do not notice that it is only their logic and not the logic of the facts. Factual logic can only be present if we retain mastery over the cooperation between the rational soul and the etheric body. For example, we keep control of our etheric body. So that in very fact these pathological expressions of our life of soul, which are seen primarily in the form of a breakdown in the connecting link between our ideas, turn out to be caused by our etheric body not being able to serve as a sound tool for the expression of our rational soul. But now the question is justified. If an etheric body, which creates a hindrance for the rational soul to unfold, is part of our nature, is there any choice but to say that the causes affecting the soul in such a way that it progresses from mere error to actual mental disorder lie in something over which we have no control? In a certain sense, such an example if we really understand it, makes us aware of something that has been emphasized here repeatedly and is considered to be nonsense by many of our contemporaries, even the most enlightened. We notice that in a quite specific way our etheric body throws obstacles in the way of the rational soul, not allowing it to finish a train of thought, so that instead of admitting that we are powerless and can go no further, we produce thoughts that are chaotic and distorted. The conclusions coming from the rational soul become mixed up with the intrusions from our etheric body. A peculiar situation. We think that the etheric body belongs to the outer man, and then it interferes with the activity of the rational soul as though it were its equal. How can this be explained? If we were merely using words, we could point to inherited characteristics and so on. This is done by those who, from a certain habit of thought, are absolutely unable to think logically about soul matters. But philosophers who are able to think about the life of the soul say that the absurdity, the chaotic confusion occurring in such a case cannot be solely the result of physical heredity. And we actually witness a well-known philosopher of our time going along his habitual tracks of thought, using a remarkable expression to describe what can go on in us and yet not be solely physical. We could even call it a pretty expression if it did not have to do with something seriously scientific. For what Wundt said was, quote, this takes us into the infinite darkness of evolution. Close quote. Anyone used to thinking scientifically will be strangely affected to hear such a thing from a world-famous philosopher. Compare this with what spiritual science says when it propounds the conclusion that soul and spirit can originate only from soul and spirit, a statement which we have often seen as comparable on a higher level 
with another conclusion which the great natural scientist Francesco Redi voiced on the 17th, in the 17th century in a different field. Living matter can originate only from living matter. Spiritual science does not point solely to physical heredity as such, but shows that in everything physical there is an actual spiritual element. And in a situation where the contrary effect of our etheric body on the rational soul becomes too great, we have to understand that something must have formed and prepared our etheric body, which is of a similar nature to our rational soul, only it has prepared it badly. If we therefore can find the mistake today in our rational soul, we can, if we can keep calm and collected, correct it so that it is not transmitted to the bodily level. And we must not be rash enough to imagine that every emotion immediately causes illness. No one can be more firmly convinced than the spiritual scientist that it is nonsense to put it down without further thought to external influences if someone becomes mentally disordered. On the other hand, we have to understand that even if we do not have the power to change our etheric body, it is saturated with the same laws of mistakenness which exist every time we err, and that illness occurs when we see the mistake incorporated into the etheric body. Such a mistake cannot normally take effect immediately in our present life. This only happens if it is repeated and becomes a habit. For it is another matter if we continue to commit similar errors during our lifetime and if we regularly succumb to certain weaknesses of thinking, feeling and willing. Remember that we stressed that between birth and death there is a limit to what can be carried over onto the outer bodily level. When we pass through the gate of death, the physical body with all its good and bad qualities is destroyed, and we take across all we have done with our thinking, feeling and willing, good and bad. And when we come to build up our external bodily part in our next incarnation, we put into it all the faults, chaos and weaknesses there are in our present thinking, feeling and willing. Therefore, if we have the kind of etheric body that hinders us, we should realize that if the fault is in our present soul life, we cannot immediately stamp it on our etheric body. But when we pass through death, what is now solely in our soul will work down in our next life into organizing the body. The characteristics and causes occurring in our etheric body are not to be found in this incarnation, for the place to look for them is in a previous existence. This shows that we can understand a wide field of mental disorder only if we enter not only into the mysterious and, quote, perpetual darkness of evolution, close quote, which tells us nothing, but into a person's earlier life. But this truth must not be taken to extremes either. For we must be aware that human beings have within them not only the qualities they have previously acquired for themselves, but also those which are inherited, and that certain qualities of the outer man must be considered as hereditary. So it is necessary to distinguish carefully between what human beings live through from one life to another and their characteristics as descendants of their ancestors. 
Now a similar disharmony can arise between our consciousness soul, which is the basis of our ego consciousness, and our physical body. Then not only do those characteristics appear in our physical body, for which we are responsible from earlier incarnations, but also those in our line of heredity. But here too the principle is the same. What is going on in the consciousness soul can be hindered by the laws at work in the physical body. And when this happens, then all those things arise which appear in such dreadful forms in the symptoms of mental disorder. This is the very place where all the worst aspects of a particular organ appear when that one becomes especially conspicuous. When the organs of our physical body work properly, together, and none of them predominates over the others, our physical body is a proper instrument for our consciousness soul and is no obstacle for us, any more than a healthy eye, E-Y-E, is an obstacle to seeing. We could mention a particular case described by an important scientist of today. There was a man, one of whose eyes was becoming blurred. He no longer had normal sight in it, and especially at dusk he saw ghost-like formations. Because of his impaired vision, he often felt as if someone were standing in his way. When eye trouble creates a hindrance, normal sight is no longer possible. Partial disturbances can take all sorts of different forms. When the consciousness soul comes upon an obstacle in the physical body, this is always attributable to one or another of the organs being particularly prominent. For when all the organs of the physical body are working together normally, it causes no resistance to the consciousness soul, and we can bring our ego consciousness to expression in a regular way. An obstacle is noticed only when an organ acquires special prominence, for then resistance is encountered. But if an open exchange with the outer world is obstructed, and we do not notice the obstacle in our consciousness, then ideas of megalomania and persecution mania appear as symptoms of the actual more deeply seated sickness. Realizing how many-membered our human organization is enables us to understand harmony and disharmony in human life. We could give only a short sketch of how these various human members work together and how spiritual science can bring order and clarification to the wonderful results presented in today's literature. When we understand this, we will be able to gain further insights such as grasping the reality of the inner man and how the inner and the outer man interact from one incarnation to another and how in certain failings of the outer man, for instance, in those of the etheric body, what appears is only a consequence of weaknesses and faults of the life of soul in earlier incarnations. But this also shows us that if the obstacles are too great, we will not always be able to overcome them by means of a well-ordered, strong inner soul life, though in many respects we will be able to do so. For if in a soul life that is not normal, we recognize that the outer man is resisting the inner man, we shall also understand how important it is to make the inner man as strong as possible. Weak people who do not want to pursue their thinking rigorously to its conclusion do not want to define their ideas clearly, 
and who are not intent on forming their feelings so that they are in accord with their experiences, such people will only be able to offer weak opposition to the resistance offered by the outer man. And if they have a disposition to illness, they will succumb to mental disorder in due course. But the situation is different if we can encounter a sick outer man with a strong inner man, because the stronger of the two will win. And we can see from this that although we cannot always be assured of victory over our outer nature, we can do all we can to keep the upper hand over it by developing a strong, well-ordered soul life. And we can see the use of this if we try to form our feelings and our will so that we do not get upset at the slightest provocation, try to extend our thinking to encompass a greater content, not thinking only the most obvious thought structures, but thinking things through into the finest details and keeping ourselves in hand so that we do not desire the impossible but set our horizons according to the facts. If we develop a strong soul life, we may still encounter limitations, but we will have done our utmost to maintain the predominance of our inner being over all external resistance. Thus we can see the significance of people developing their soul life in the way required. At the present time, there is little understanding for what is meant by developing the soul life. It has been mentioned when similar opportunities offered themselves that nowadays people attach great importance to physical education, walking and jogging and extensive P.E. I am not saying anything against the principle of the matter. These things can be good for the health. But they most certainly do not lead, do not lead to good results if attention is given solely to the outer man as though it were a machine, and people do exercises aimed only at strengthening them physiologically. In gymnastics, people should not do the kind of exercises that are done for the sole purpose of strengthening particular muscles, but care should be taken that each exercise provokes inner joy, and that the impetus for every exercise comes from an inner feeling of well-being. The impulses for doing the exercises should come from the soul. For instance, gym teachers should be able to enter with their own feeling into the different sort of well-being experienced by the soul when performing the different exercises. Then we strengthen the soul. Otherwise all we do is strengthen the body and the soul will continue to be weak. Those who really observe life will find that exercises carried out with this in view have a health-giving effect and make quite a different contribution to a person's well-being than the exercises given to people as though they were merely an anatomical apparatus. It is not until one goes thoroughly into spiritual science that one discovers the connection between the life of the soul and the life of the physical body. Those who believe that physical movement can balance out mental tiredness are unaware of something important. Spiritual investigators know that they can become excessively tired if they have to convey a truth to another person and then have to listen to them if they are not yet able to speak about it coherently and cannot yet form proper thought pictures. This will make spiritual researchers very tired, whereas they do not get tired at all, 
however much they research in the spiritual world. The reason for this is that when one is listening to someone, one is dealing with a form of bodily communication involving the physical brain, whilst spiritual research, though it still requires the participation of physical organs when taking place at lower levels, requires this less and less the higher it it researches, and it therefore becomes less and less tiring. When the outer man no longer needs to participate, tiredness no longer arises. So we see that we have to distinguish between one kind of spiritual activity and another, that there is a difference whether spiritual activity gets its impulse from the soul itself or whether these are prompted from outside. This is something which should always be taken into account, that in the various stages of human development, that which occurs is always something that corresponds to the inner impulses. Let us take a fact that has been stressed before and can be found in my little book titled The Education of the Child in the Light of Anthroposophy. There it says that in all they do, children up to the seventh year of age act according to the impulse of imitation. Then between the change of teeth and puberty, their development proceeds in the direction of following the word of authority or acting according to the impression made on them by other people. Now let us take the case of what happens if these two stages of imitating and then of subjecting themselves to authority are ignored. If no account is taken of them, then the outer sheaths, instead of becoming a normal instrument of the soul, will develop irregularly, and the soul will then no longer have the opportunity in the following periods of human development to affect in the correct way the irregular nature of the outer man and interact with it. And then we shall see that when people enter one of these new stages of development at significant stages of their life, a member of their being may to a certain extent have remained behind. It would then be easy to see that what brings about the sort of thing that usually occurs as schizophrenia, dementia, praecox, is nothing else but the ignoring of this law. Through failing to follow the proper procedures at the earlier stages, dementia praecox can arise as disharmony in the interaction between the inner and the outer man and is a symptom of belated imitation. Then it becomes evident that the disharmony in areas which spiritual science cleanly divides is in many respects the cause of abnormality in the soul. Similarly, we can see in the appearance of senile dementia toward the end of life the disharmony between inner and outer man brought about because as a young person in the years between puberty and the time when the actual body is fully developed, life was not lived in such a manner that harmony could exist between the inner and the outer man. From this we see, too, that having a proper perception of the human being can illuminate the character of error and mental disorder. And even if we have only found a superficial connection and cannot say that error, insofar as it is part of normal soul life, can affect our outer nature, we nevertheless have to say 
that compared with this, the law according to which a development of strong logic, a regulated soul life, harmonious in feeling and willing, can strengthen us against the obstacles which arise from the outer man, is greatly encouraging. Thus, spiritual science gives us the possibility, perhaps not always, but most of the time, of countering the supremacy of the outer man. It is important that when we nurture and strengthen the inner man, we are doing it in order to oppose the predominance of the outer man. Spiritual science gives us the remedy for doing this, and does so by constantly emphasizing the importance of developing an ordered and proper thought life, which does not stop halfway through with its thoughts, but pursues them consistently to the end. This is why spiritual science, with its strict demand to order one's soul life, so that it proves to be inwardly disciplined and harmonized, is itself a remedy against the prevalence of a pathological outer man. And people can be victorious over pathological tendencies if they can deal with their bodily weakness or bodily deformity with sound willing, sound feeling, and thinking based on self-discipline. People often do not like hearing things like this today, yet it is important for an understanding of the present. In fact, spiritual science is actually doing us a good turn in that it is a consolation to have pointed out to us that it is our spiritual nature, if we really strengthen it, that is the best remedy for dealing with everything that comes our way in life. What we learn from spiritual science is not to theorize about the spirit, but to make it an effective force in us by endeavoring not to stop our thinking halfway through, as philosophers are so fond of doing. For it is nothing but half-finished thinking when people say, quote, Prove to us what you say about repeated earth lives, close quote, for you cannot prove it to people who refuse to think their thoughts through to the end. Whole truths cannot be proved with half-thoughts. They can only be proved with complete thoughts, and complete thoughts are what human beings have to develop within themselves. If the indications that have been given here are expanded further, it will be seen that they expose a particular evil of our time, the disbelief in the spirit. But at one and the same time we are being shown where the remedy lies for transforming disbelief into belief in being able to develop real strong spirituality. A belief in common sense is in large measure lacking in humankind today. Therefore, an intelligent impartiality, essential to an actual grasping of the truths of spiritual science, is not always present. It is not meant as ridicule and irony, but said with a kind of sadness in realizing that certain lines in title Faust, describing a type of person, might also be applied to our present time. Quote, if they possessed the philosopher's stone, the philosopher would not match the stone. Common sense can understand spiritual science, and a sensible grasp of spiritual science means a healthy recovery right into the very extremities of the outer man. This, by the way, is claimed not only by today's spiritual scientists, but by anyone else who endeavors to approach the spirit 
by other paths than spiritual science does. But these others are also little understood. Who would not ridicule Hegel today precisely because he emphasizes the presence of common sense, reason, the essential need for it, and the power it has? He laid such stress on it that he thought of the power of reason in a person of today as being like this, quote, I imagine human life as a cross, close quote. And for Hegel, the roses on the cross were the equivalent of reason in a human being. Quote, no, not, not a quote yet. This is why the prefaces of one of his works with the heading, quote, Reason is the rose in today's cross, close quote. And believe, and belief in reason will make the cross victorious. Belief in reason and belief in disciplined thinking and an harmonious emotional life and life of will is what will put the roses on the cross. We can say, therefore, that there is some truth in it that if we believe in being able to develop an harmonious emotional life and a harmonious will life and have belief in the need to develop a disciplined life of reason, we have the power within us to counteract mental disorder at least to a certain extent. If we develop these three, then under all circumstances we shall make ourselves stronger and more successful in our lives. And because Hegel puts a harmonious life of emotion and of will, a disciplined life of thought and a reasoned intellectuality, all under the heading of reason, he wrote the statement which can stand as a motto for our own soul development, that for us human beings... Reason should be the rose in today's cross. The end of Lecture 7